Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts. Who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of Selling the Cloud podcast. I'm your host, Ray Reich, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Petruzzi. Hello, Mark. Hello, Ray. Well, we are joined today by a longtime business friend and colleague, Jamie Shanks, the founder and CEO of Sales for Life. We're going to be covering three main areas with Jamie. First, the evolution of social selling to digital selling and beyond. Scaling pipeline development, the challenges and the opportunities in the modern world. And third, the future of B2B sales in the cloud. Hey, Jamie, take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Selling the Cloud podcast. Well, if you go back as far as 10 years ago, I was a VP of sales at a software company. I was employee number three. We grew it to $3 million ARR. And frankly, I thought I knew everything there ever was to know about sales. And I would spin out a consulting company and start teaching at that time, sales 2.0 or inside sales. And turns out I was a failed consultant for the first couple of years. I had no idea what I was doing, didn't understand cash flow management. And I, through happenstance and luck, self-discovered and my needing to prospect on my own, discovered a process of using social media for selling, like social selling the word had not yet been invented. And so long of the short, at an AAISP event, I was in the crowd at a conference where they were talking about social media for sales. And I had been experimenting with tools like LinkedIn to reverse engineer what people were doing on the phone and email, but doing it socially. And I was able to use it as an outbound account-based sales development tool. And a light bulb went off and I recognized that there would be a market and started to develop the world's first training curriculum on that topic. So you know, over the years, I met Ray through customers, and we are a global sales training company, which enables global mid-market, global enterprise organizations in increasing that yield per seller in the organization. And we do that by transferring knowledge as to how to develop an inbound strategy around social selling, and then an account-based sales development strategy as well. So it's, a, it's two courses put together, we call the scale pipeline system. I hope that gave a bit of background. Jamie, thanks for that background. So let's go right into the first topic. And one of the reasons we were excited about having you here is you're such a pioneer in social selling. So the first question I have for you is, how have you seen both the theory and the applied reality of social selling evolve over the last few years? And then specifically, did it evolve differently in 2020 because of the pandemic? So that's my first topic I want to discuss. So great question. So social selling, as I helped pioneer that word, I don't know if I was actually the category creator or the category pirate, but I was one of the two, but social selling at that time was developed as an inbound sales motion. And the concept was, how do I build myself to be a trusted advisor? And how do I become a lead magnet? 
So if you look at how it was built at that time, and by the year 2017, I wrote a book called Social Selling Mastery. It was based on these three core principles. How do I develop an online brand? How do I learn to share content one-to-one and one-to-many? And then how do I grow a social network that would eventually boomerang back and enjoy the content that I was sharing to need help and become some sort of lead flow? So that's where it originated. And the word social selling started to evolve towards digital selling because as it started to also evolve to an outbound account-based centric model, people realized that LinkedIn was where I began this journey and it could be used in Twitter and in other countries, Zing and Weibo and WeChat. But then it started to evolve into other platforms such as using the power of video, asynchronous video to be able to communicate with the customer. So if you look at the prospecting journey, there's a left brain and a right brain motion. The left brain motion needs to collect data and intelligence and insights to make informed decisions around account selection and account prioritization. But at some point, you need to engage the customer. And as you went to engage, originally, you would engage through a medium like a LinkedIn or a Twitter. But then what about the message itself and the storytelling? Could you not use video? So the word social selling started to evolve into digital selling. Then companies like IBM and LinkedIn started to evolve that term to be even a bigger catch-all, and it was modern selling. And all that's really happened is that the phone and email are just one form of medium to communicate, and that there are other platforms, social platforms, bring research and they bring engagement into you know one house and that's the benefit of a tool like LinkedIn. So that's where it's evolved. It's now of course we had to develop it into an account-based model, an outbound account-based model, sales development model, because our customers, global enterprise, global market, demanded us to show how we could use these theories to turn it into practical application for outbound. So that's the first part to your question. The second part what happened when COVID hit? So I spent the years 2012 through about 2017 and 18, every sales call was why, right? There was no chief revenue officer, VP of enablement that ever woke up and said, sell me this thing called social selling mastery, right? They knew that they had a prospecting challenge or that their pipeline coverage was at a ratio that was an abomination and would never hit sales quota attainment. But they, they didn't wake up and correlate that product to you know, a result or an outcome. By around 2017, 2018, there had been enough companies dive into this world of social selling that the conversation moved from why to change to more about, okay, I've been told I need to investigate this thing, social selling or digital selling. How do I do it? So a lot of my pitches were now how's. What happened was, let's take it months before COVID. Months before COVID, I'm still evangelizing. I'm still having this conversation. Why you need to be more digital, more online. Why purchase LinkedIn Sales Navigator? Like That conversation was happening all the time. Then COVID hit. Everyone who was a field seller, a six-figure field seller, was brought to an inside sales motion And now every CFO in the world started to look at, wow, we're saving tremendous amount of money by reducing our planes, trains, and automobiles, selling motion. And 
I now have sellers making $150,000 a year who are doing basically the same sales motion as my BDRs and SDRs who are being paid $50,000 a year. So there's been obviously over the last 18 months, a lot of companies changing their go-to-market strategy and their sales motion. But what had happened now in the enablement side is conversation shifted from, you remember that thing I turned you guys down and said that this was a nice to have? Now my sales organization, if they do not learn these skills and capabilities, they won't even be able to have basic conversations with our customers because you can't meet them anymore. There's no more coffees. I can't even open doors anymore. And I'm watching my competitors scale their social networks, their brands. They're wrapping themselves. We call it socially surrounding. They're wrapping themselves around our customers, our prospects faster than we are. So what happened is it took what we all knew to be true and it fast forwarded dramatically. And any company that recognized that this would be their pervasive go-to-market strategy long-term has had to either build versus buy and figure out how are we going to do this. Mark, there's a lot of food to chew on there. Where do you want to start? Well, no, that was uh, that was a great start, Jamie. So thank you. You know, and it kind of all sums up in my world with a quote that Satya Nordella, CEO of Microsoft, shared at the beginning of COVID or a few months in, that we just had three years of digital sales transformation in three months. And he's right. And, you know, what can happen in that type of circumstance is you can see great momentum by that. You could also make a lot of mistakes in that compressed timeframe. So how do you do this, Jamie? How do you make that transformation and make it in the most productive way and to make sure you don't make mistakes by just thinking everything that you could do as an outside sales rep, everything you could do face-to-face, you can now do online and on Zoom and on Teams. And I'm a believer that 51% of the success of any of these digital transformations starts and ends with the buy-in, the governance, and the accountability of the frontline sales managers and leaders. Because in essence, the sales leaders are the ones that design the sales plays for which sellers to execute. And then they are the ones that hold them accountable and govern that process to be executed correctly. So where it all starts and ends, before you start diving into tools and tech and integrations and deep into the sales play rabbit hole, is start up higher at communication, buy-in, and figuring out how are we going to measure success of our transformation. And so for us, you know, we ended up building a program called Leadership Accelerator, which helped leaders understand you are the CEO of your market, and you're going to have to change the way that you run your one-on-ones, and the inflection points that you start looking for are going to be different. But you have to inspect what you expect. And so if you still require the same sort of outputs, and remember, as a seller, you can control the decisions you make and the actions you take. So you need to be able to look at those controlled actions. Are we still having the right conversations with the right customers? Are we still opening enough doors and having enough conversations either with prospects or customers? You know, the basic blocking and tackling proposals and so forth. Well, those can't change. And unless somehow through massive cost savings, you've been allowed to you know, reduce those volumes and metrics, which probably didn't happen, you're going to still have to produce those same unit economics. So 
How are we going to do it? And that means you're going to have to get the frontline bought in that changes afoot, that there are ways, there are solutions to evolve your sales process, as uncomfortable as those might feel. And that as leaders, we're going to have to embrace that these sales plays are going to evolve. And you enable the leaders first to be able to recognize what are those inflection points or coaching moments that you're going to look for, green flags and red flags. Are we doing the right things or the wrong things? Get them bought in first. Then now you bring it into the executables into the field and say, hey, let's run with the plays we all agree, we believe are going to either open doors or upsell and cross-sell our customers or protect the core customer. So, I hope that answered the question. So Jamie, let me double click on two things. The first one is you talked about measurements and you know me, I'm the metrics that measure up guy. So pipeline, I think when I first engaged social selling training and curriculum, I was having a challenge with pipeline, pipeline development. And of course, I also was having an issue with the quality of the pipeline that marketing was generating while trying to get my AEs and SDRs to generate more of their own. So is pipeline development the ultimate measurement and return on digital selling and these techniques? Or is it a higher conversion rate and higher quality ARR and customers or both? I think it can be both. Typical of our customers is to look at the singular thing that they are trying to control or they can't control it, but align towards, which is pipeline coverage growth at scale across the sales organization. And that comes in incremental milestones. So for us, the way that we look at learning as you know a leading indicator and then behavioral change as that current indicator and then outcomes as the laggard, we drive towards quarterly milestones so that each seller needs to learn skills and apply it in the market and drive an outcome in a 90-day burst. That means that each seller needs to create either a net new opportunity or an upsell cross-sell into an existing core customer and be able to prove it and defend it in that 90-day time horizon. What that does at scale is it swells pipeline coverage. You now have a whole cohort of new deals in the pipeline that you get to measure where the doors open faster. Did we shorten the velocity of time to win them over a time period? The volumes obviously just did increase. Then what you do is 180 days in, 270 or whatever that number is, and 365 days a year later, Every quarter, look at how now that not only that singular event of learning translate, how did all those deals translate over six to 12 months, but now individually as sellers, and then as a collective cohort or over the sales organization, is this learning happening on a repeatable fashion? So thus, when we started the program, was our pipeline coverage ratio, let's say 2.1, meaning that the sellers had 2.1 times more pipeline over a time horizon than the required sales quota attainment of that same time horizon. That, of course, is not necessarily a great pipeline coverage because, you know, average seller might close 25%, thus they need a four times pipeline coverage. But long of the short is, you take those sellers and you measure them over time and are we growing the pipeline coverage quarter over quarter? That is typically what most of our customers around the world are aiming their guns at that singular metric as the thing that is most important to them. So whether they try to chip away 
at improving forecast accuracy and the quality, as you mentioned, of that pipeline coverage, that might be happening behind the scenes, but they're really trying to solve for the biggest problem they're having, which is sales quota attainment isn't happening because sellers just do not have adequate pipeline coverage. Mark, anything you want to add to that? Well, the only thing I'd like to actually go a little deeper with Jamie. So, you know, thinking about the effect of COVID, you know, on most sales quota attainment, and there were some organizations like Zoom that got a big burst of energy behind them and uh, delivered accordingly. And there were others that faced some headwinds. What have you seen? Maybe you can share a little bit about what you saw with pipeline versus quota. Was there anything that just happened that you didn't expect, i.e. that, you know, pipeline diminished in some ways, but a percentage of win uh, increased? What, what did you see with that? And then, you know, what did you see, you know, the world leaders, the world-class companies, how did they make sure their pipeline got to where they needed it to be six months into COVID, 12 months into COVID, and today as well? What did they do that helped them attain that? Great question. So at a macro level, like anything is a Pareto's law, there's basically two types of companies that invest in the skills and capabilities of their sellers. There are those that are very forward thinking. They're already ahead of plan, doing well. And they recognize that the investment in sellers they make today make massive leaps and bounds two or three years into the future. That's a 20% of those organizations. And the companies that excelled through this, like our cybersecurity customers, anybody selling to the CISO is on fire right now because it's a hot topic. And so what they're trying to do is enable their teams because every other cybersecurity company or those that, again, sell into the CISO is jumping all over to digital transformation. Then you have the 80% of sales organizations that fell below plan. If you've ever seen that Gartner statistic of the percentage of sellers quota attainment from the year 2011, every year diminished worse and worse and worse. And then a company called Topo started measuring the percentage of sellers that weren't making their quota. And that hasn't been moving in the right direction. So that at a macro trend, that's kind of what we saw. And I don't think that that is earth shattering to anybody, but Here's a, a nugget of gold, a tactical nugget of gold that came out of our certifications that we didn't expect. So as mentioned, to become certified in our program, a seller has to create a tangible outcome in 90 days and defend it in a case study that comes in video format and also comes in a documented format. And this is now tens and tens of thousands of sellers getting certified. Some are selling into net new, some are selling into existing customers with the aim then of upselling and cross-selling. So when I started this business, the singular sales play or signal that helped me scale my own company was a category of signal we call relationships. And there's a play within it we call the sphere of influence, which means if you were to take a happy customer and you know draw their logo in the center of a sheet of paper and then reverse engineer a spider web from it, ask yourself from your happy, successful customer, who cares? And you'll start to recognize that there's advocates that leave those customers and go into other businesses. There are companies that recruit the IT department from those companies. Those are the organizations that most care about the success or failure of that company. Thus, you tell stories to those companies only of your happy, successful customer, and you're much more likely to open doors there. 
That is the sales play that opened up and grew my business and grew many of our customers for years and years and years. And I would have thought that our customers would have leaned in hard on that singular sales play, specifically during COVID times, and dive into their happy advocates and reverse engineering. But the sales play that opened the most doors of all of our customers around the world was a time-based signal. So time-based signals have maturity events, IPOs, M&A, and also human capital migration. So people going into companies, leaving companies, and being promoted. So the singular opportunity that created more than 50% of all the opportunities globally of all of our customers was a sales play we call the advocate job change, which basically whatever is the buyer persona, your listener, you on the, on the podcast, you sell into. That might be the CMO, CFO, COO. Monitoring those people taking new jobs, even though you have no relationship roadmap to them, no connectivity to them. Those people during this last 18 months came into companies and shook things up dramatically in these companies. And it opened up net new doors at so many of our customers. And so now our customers are opening their eyes to this and just following the breadcrumbs, watching leaders take jobs and introducing or basically building relationships with them very, very, very early in that leader's tenure, thinking that leader's going to shake up new people, process, technology. And in fact, very forward-thinking customers of ours started monitoring the job postings pre that event even happening. So tools like LinkedIn or JobVite or other job posting sites could even tell you who's recruiting for certain roles. And they would start preparing in advance, knowing that change was afoot in that business. Because if you really think about it, Priorities change because humans make those changes. And so follow the humans was the goal. So I hope that I gave you kind of a macro and a bit of a micro approach to what we saw during COVID. It was way more pervasive than we expected. You definitely did, Jamie. Thank you. That's interesting. I'm going to do something that a lot of entrepreneurs, including yourself, Jamie, have done. I'm going to pivot just a little bit, but I'm going to pivot back to something you said very early in today's podcast. And that was about building your social brand. And that was a key part of the initial social selling curriculum. One of the things I see going on today is, especially for earlier career salespeople, they're getting very good at building their online brand, sometimes in front of the company that they're representing. Do you have a perspective on the balances or balancing between building your personal brand and your brand within your company? That's an interesting one because I started by building my social brand only that was a business brand. And only recently I decoupled and had more humanistic qualities on other tools like Instagram as an example. But the way that I would phrase this for a new seller is recognize that the most important piece, at least from uh, what feeds your family, what is going to feed your career is you need to over-index into recognizing how you serve the community, the community that is part of your business or ecosystem, your your company's business. Like say you sold into the HR space as an example. If you intend on growing and developing in that HR space, it's critically important you develop a brand there. But future employers are going to notice your ability to scale your brand 
even if it's into adjacent industries or verticals. So as an employer, as an entrepreneur, I would be looking for teammates that are willing to dive into this ecosystem or community that they serve today and will be willing to, even if you change into my ecosystem, which is not in the HR space, we sell to sales leaders, you'll be willing to adjust your brand when you come to me and develop a community there too. Because if you're not doing it at the current team that you're with now, me as your future employer would sit there thinking, well, you're just not going to do it with me too. And that means that I have a less than optimal sales performer on my team. Just taken a non, a real non-digital seller and I've just made them a non-digital seller in my community. So that's how I personally would look at it. And you might think that, oh, I don't want to dive in deep with the HR community because I don't know if I'm going to be in HR forever. Well, guess what? Your future employer is noticing this as well. Hey, let me turn this over to Mark. Hey, Mark, you know, a lot of our listeners are chief revenue officers. A lot of the people you work with are CROs. I personally find CROs to be laggards and adopting this personal brand building on social media. Number one, do you agree with that? And do you think that needs to change for CROs? You know, it's interesting. So I do agree with that. I don't know that I know why that's uh, that phenomenon occurs. Because if you look at CROs away from social media are typically, you know, bigger personalities. They are typically very charismatic. So to see that approach, you know, playing out in social media is a little bit, a little bit of an anomaly. My speculation is though, and this is an amazing cognitive and psychological principle here that, that we could be uncovering. And that is, you know, what I also have seen is CROs really hate to be sold to. They're some of the worst buyers in the world uh, that I've experienced. And I think that's part of it. They want to almost try to build a barrier around them from the standpoint of people selling to them. Because of course, you know, they do get a lot of people reaching out to them, you know, all the time from a selling perspective. So, you know, but to tie back to your question, you know, I would also tell you that, you know, I don't think they have to really change their approach, you know, he or she from a CRO perspective, because the market knows what they deliver and what they accomplish. So, you know, the only part I would look at to say, okay, you know, if they're looking for more opportunity, if they're looking for different employment opportunities down the road, then yeah, maybe they do need to build up their positioning on the web. But it's uh, it's such an efficient market at the end of the day. And most industries, particularly in my specialty area of cloud and SaaS and different sub-components of that, like Jamie was saying, uh, HCM SaaS versus CRM SaaS, you know, people know who are achieving and succeeding, particularly at the CRO level. So that, that's my response. Jamie, what do you think? Do you well, see it differently? You actually bring up a great point. So for a customer, we actually built a TAM map of North America IT SaaS technology. And so if you look at the mid-market and global enterprise, there's about 1,500 companies of meaningful size in North mm -hmm. America in that kind of SaaS community. So your TAM isn't very large. Up until COVID, if you were a high-performing CRO, 
one recruiting firm is going to move you, you know, it's a small incestuous world is going to move you from one company to the next. As a CRO though, if you were a CRO in your late forties, early fifties, a lot of runway left in your career. Think of it though, as a, as a pyramid behind you is a cohort. I'm 42. Okay. So some of my friends have made it to that CRO level, but they're kind of in that AVP, RVP age bracket. So in that triangle for every CRO, there's going to be AVPs, RVPs, SVP sales ops. There's a whole bunch of people vying for that next role Hmm. who I'm the first generation that was, they call digital native versus digital immigrant. I am the last of the digital immigrant born with an Atari in my hand, but didn't get my first email account until university and my first cell phone until my mid twenties, but I had to learn these skills. So anyone a little bit younger than me, there's a whole cohort of those that are much more digitally savvy. Thus, because they're more digitally savvy and building greater social brands, they're invited to speak more at conferences or podcasts or webinars and so forth. And they're building these communities. And I think also by building those communities, they become much more open and receptive to new ideas and innovations, and they're learning at a faster pace. So I believe pre-COVID, completely agree. Post-COVID, and I don't have this answer, and I don't know of this to be true. I'm just prognosticating five years into the future. You're going to have an army of four, now I'm 42, now 47-year-olds who have built up these social brands that again, the private equity firm that owns these companies, the VC firms that own these companies might want to shake things up. And the dinosaur that has no social network that built business on the golf course Mm. might get cycled out for this hot young buck who he or she has built up such a following and a brand and are on on these podcasts and webinars. Maybe why don't we hear what they have to say and put them in that power seat? So that's my play this back in five year bet. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jamie. So unfortunately, we're coming up on our time. But I added one more thing that I thought our listening audience would really benefit from. You were a VP of sales turned founder entrepreneur. And you've seen a lot of peaks and valleys over the last 10 plus years. So if we have a VP of sales or CR listening to our podcast, and they're thinking about do I go out and create my own company? Do I start using um, instead of building other people's companies, my own, what advice do you have for him, Jamie? The best advice I ever got about entrepreneurship. If you were willing to make 50% of the lifetime revenue income for yourself that you could have made as a CRO inside a hot growing SaaS company, and you're comfortable with that, then you're ready for entrepreneurship because the percentage chance as an entrepreneur that you're going to have those home runs that you could have had by joining some hot, fast startup that you now become the CRO at is a much less greater probability. I, I don't know if that's the right words, but it's less likely. But you have to be willing to accept that and be comfortable with that and excited about that. Then you're ready for entrepreneurship. If it's all about the money, listen, your stock options and your bonuses and all the perks of being an entrepreneur, somebody who works within a fast-growing startup, is going to be way more fruitful through probability. Mark, anything you want to add before we wrap up today's episode? No, you know, I think just really good advice. And I, I see it very, very similarly. 
And that's not always the case. There are other industries that aren't as fast growing as SaaS and cloud. So, you know, there's some special considerations that should be taken if you're in our industry than maybe if you were going to be an entrepreneur in something industrial or healthcare focused. So I think that's, uh, that's wise, sage wisdom there. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the pro-serve space. So the reason you get it as a professional services firm owner, first, you have to love customers and love what you do. That's an obvious. But from a financial standpoint, you have to love cash flow and drawing great income because there's great margins and profit in pro-serve. But you're not getting the home run equity that you do in a SaaS company. So you have to be very comfortable with cash flow over equity. Well, that's a wrap on today's episode of Selling the Cloud. Jamie Shanks, founder, CEO of Sales for Life, talking about the evolution of social selling to digital selling to scaling pipeline development. Jamie, thank you so much for being a guest today. Thanks a lot for inviting me. And for our listening audience, if you're enjoying the content and the guests that we're having, it would mean the world to Mark and I if you would follow us on your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and give us a rating and provide us your feedback on what you thought of the podcast. Mark, as always, it was a pleasure to to be your co-host today. Thank you, Ray. And thank you, Jamie. Bye, everyone. 